Could you please open your Bible to Genesis uh, chapter 6? You know, this first section of this chapter functions as a transition. Uh, it wraps up the pre-flood history of the previous chapters, but it also prepares us for the story of Noah and the flood that follows. Uh, this section of Scripture is one of the most debated and difficult to interpret, not only in the book of Genesis, uh, but it's up there with the most difficult in all of the Bible. And I want to acknowledge that there are different interpretations of this portion of Scripture, and some of you may understand it differently to me. Uh, but my goal is to help us understand how this fits into the big picture of Scripture, as I believe that doesn't change no matter your interpretation of the difficult aspects of this text. And it is important for us that we don't lose sight of the big idea of this text by becoming consumed with the tricky elements within it. Now, the big question that this text answers is, why does God drown the whole world? Have you ever thought about that? Why is a worldwide flood unleashed? The story of Noah, the ark, and the flood, they're all very well known. Uh, it's important to state, to state up front that the ark, this flood, it, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time story. It's not fiction, but it happened. The whole world was covered with water, devastating destruction. That There was what we could call a de-creation. And it leads to a couple of obvious questions. What, why was this necessary? What went wrong? Previously, God had declared that creation was very good, but now he wiped it out. He, he pulled it apart. He completely destroyed it. Why was this devastating decreation necessary? And that's the question that's answered in our text. And this big idea must stay at the forefront of our minds as it will help us to not get too lost in some of the more difficult details. So this is the question that we will seek to answer. Why does God drown the whole world? We will seek to determine the cause of this decreation. So that's where we're heading in this sermon. Now the text begins in verse 1 by identifying a population boom. And this has connections back to Genesis chapter 1. The creation mandate in part was being fulfilled. They were being fruitful and multiplying. Yeah, the population is expanding rapidly, and this was aided by the long lifespans prior to the flood. Okay, people were living longer, they were having lots of children. But the problem was that not only was the population increasing, but so was the wickedness of mankind. The earth had become polluted and corrupted by sin. The deadly disease was spreading rapidly, and it was wreaking havoc. God gives his verdict of the condition of the world in verse 5. And it's certainly not a favorable diagnosis. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it begins, God saw. And again, this seems to be a contrast with Genesis chapter 1. There he saw that it was good. But now he saw something very different. 
And my friend, this reminds us that God sees everything. That's a truth we teach to our little children, but I think it's one we as adults need to remember. Nothing escapes the Lord's piercing gaze. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees and hears all that happens, all that we think, all that we desire. Think about that. There are no secrets with God. He sees into the darkest corner of our innermost being. There is nothing that escapes his attention. And with this ability, as he assesses the world, the verdict is not pretty. Wickedness had spread throughout the earth like a highly contagious disease. It had spread everywhere. In verse 11, the earth is said to be corrupt. It's been infiltrated by great wickedness. And understand, this was not isolated. This was pervasive. That This was a common characteristic. And this was not just external behavior issues. Okay, the text tells us, but rather every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Okay, notice the language used. Every, only, continually. Okay, that's painting a very bleak picture. The Hebrew term here translated imagination is from a root word relating to pottery. And the image is that mankind were shaping and molding all kinds of putrid wickedness in their minds. That they were filled with sick fantasies. Many of them lived out. They were corrupt to the core. And it's hard to conceive of a more emphatic statement declaring the complete wickedness of mankind. There was no repentance. There's no relenting. There's no restraints. Just pure wickedness. Shameless depravity and spiritual decay. The pre-flood world had plunged headfirst into the putrid pool of iniquity. It was in a state of deplorable degeneracy. It's not a pretty picture. But as we think about this, we, we can't just let ourselves off the hook and shake our head at this previous generation, which is our tendency, isn't it? We look at it and we think, whoa, that's so bad. But we need to understand this is the natural condition of all mankind. Depravity is the theological term. Mankind, both then and now, are not born good. Okay, we, we are not naturally good people. But rather, the Bible tells us we're, we're corrupt. We're wicked. <clears throat> now, this doesn't mean that we can't do any good, nor does it mean that we live out all of the wickedness to its full extent. But what it does mean is that we are impacted by sin. We're corrupt. We're broken. We're born in sin. It's coursing through our veins as the children of Adam. We need to understand that mankind is not inherently good with just the odd exception. It's not like we're all good except, you know, Hitler and Saddam Hussein. But rather, we are all depraved. And we're all in desperate need of drastic intervention. And that can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. But if all of mankind is depraved and wicked, corrupt to the core, as I've argued, why did God unleash his divine wrath in the form of a worldwide flood at this point in time? What, was there something here that made it particularly wicked? Well, in verses 2 to 4, we have a particular illustration of the wickedness that had overcome the world. 
And this is a particularly devious and potentially disastrous time. What we have recorded here has the potential to tear to pieces, like a lion does its prey, the plans and purposes of God of providing a savior through the seed of the woman. Okay, this particular practice explained here, okay, well, whatever it means, which we'll get to shortly, this is all about corrupting the seed of the woman. If you remember God's promise in Genesis 3.15, such an important verse, God is going to crush the serpent. God is going to deal with sin. That's the promise. How was this going to come about? It was through the seed of the woman. And what we have recorded here is an attempt to infiltrate and corrupt the seed of the woman. This is an attempt to jeopardize God's promise. And this is true no matter how you interpret the phrase, the sons of God. So this is how it fits into the big story of scripture. This is yet another satanic attempt to corrupt the messianic line. It's vital for us to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Now with that stated, let's move into the part that you've all been waiting for. Who are the sons of God? And how do they pose such a potential threat that demands such a drastic response from the Lord? Now there are three interpretations that have a following when it comes to identifying the sons of God. Number one is angels. Number two is human judges or rulers. And number three is the descendants of Seth. And verses one to three are the most popular. Now the view that says the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Okay, this view goes something like this. Okay, they view Seth as the godly line and they intermarry with the line of Cain, the ungodly line. Now the strength of this view is that chapters four and five do expound these two family lines. And if you know the Old Testament, you will know that intermarriage is a problem throughout the entire Old Testament. So the problem with okay, this view presents it like this. The godly line of Seth through which Messiah will come is being corrupted by the ungodly line of Cain. So that's one view. Now the weakness with this interpretation is the assumption that the line of Seth is godly and the line of Cain is ungodly. Because think about it, if the line of Seth is so godly, why was there so few on the ark? Okay, so that's one problem. Now also, this phrase, the sons of God, it never refers to the line of Seth anywhere else. Likewise, this view doesn't explain the offspring in verse 4, which we'll get to. And another thought is this, is this serious enough to justify such a drastic decision from God to destroy the world? Okay, I think that's something we need to think through. Okay, and also, it doesn't take into account some New Testament texts which seem to shed some light on Genesis chapter 6. And this particular view doesn't appear in church history until the time of Augustine. So there are some issues with this, with this sorry, popular view. And that's why I don't believe it's the best interpretation. But rather, the view with the most compelling evidence is that the sons of God 
Okay, are angels or fallen angels more particularly? And there are still some difficulties with this view, and many reject it because it sounds far-fetched. But I believe there's a strong case for this interpretation. I'd like to present that to you. Now, this phrase, sons of God, the exact Hebrew terminology, it's only used three other times. It's all in the book of Job. Uh, there is a similar phrase in the book of Daniel, but there it's in Aramaic. And there are similar usages elsewhere. But the exact phrase is only found in the book of Job. And these three instances in which it's used, it clearly speaks of angels. Okay, Job chapter 1 and verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, same phrase, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Okay, so here, the sons of God, they're definitely angels. Job chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So again, this is very similar to the previous verse. Again, it is angels. And then Job 38 and verse 7 says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here are the angels singing as the world is created. So from other scriptural uses, which is always significant, okay, this points toward the angel understanding. Now it's interesting that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translate okay, this phrase, son of God, as angel, okay, angelos, if it's in the plural, angeloi. They do that with these three verses in the book of Job. This particular interpretation is found in the writings of Josephus. It's also found in the book of Enoch. Okay, that book's not inspired, but it does say a lot about the angel interpretation of Genesis 6. And this view has always been favored by the Jews. So, so this is more evidence to this particular understanding. Now, this interpretation that I'm proposing also helps to explain the offspring in verse 4. And it also fits the context of God decreeing to unleash such devastating judgment. Because if this is angels, if this is angels marrying mankind, this would be a new dimension of wickedness that has been injected into mankind, hence provoking such a strong reaction from the Lord. So this all harmonizes with the flow of the text. But the greatest evidence is found in the New Testament. So a good thing for us to remember is whenever you're studying the Old Testament, you better pay attention to anything that the New Testament has to say about that text. Okay, because that's the inspired interpretation. And there are verses in the New Testament that I believe shed some light on Genesis chapter 6. The first portion of scripture is found in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2. It would be good for us to turn there, please. 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, 
and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now notice what Peter does here, that there are two pairs. We've got the angels that sinned and Noah, along with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Okay, that's how the Greek text is structured. Now what we do know is that Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot go together. Okay, they fit in the same narrative. We know that from the book of Genesis. So Sodom is the negative example and Lot is the positive example. So from that, it seems that the angel sinning and Noah fit in the same narrative. The angels, the negative example, and Noah is the positive. Now the question is, what negative thing did the angels do? Well, that would be explained by Genesis 6 if we interpret that as angels. Then there's Jude, verses 6 and 7. And this is similar to what we find in 2 Peter. Okay, Jude, this is 6 and 7, says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of that great day, sorry, of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire now what's interesting is that this assumes that the readers would readily identify and understand what was meant and this is not referring to the fall of the angels because they are not all bound okay only some are bound the question is why okay why are some of the fallen angels bound but others are not well genesis chapter 6 would explain that and it's interesting that Sodom and Gomorrah is used here to illustrate the type of sin committed by the angels. Okay, and we know about the sins of Sodom, okay, that they were sexual sins. Okay, the word fornication and going after strange flesh is used here in the book of Jude. And that fits the interpretation that Genesis chapter 6 is about fallen angels. And then one more text is 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, and I'd like to read from verse 18. It says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, been put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Okay, what we have here is Christ preaching to the spirits or the angels in prison. Okay, this is the same group that was identified in the book of Jude and 2 Peter. And what we have here is Christ preaching a sermon of victory. And we're told that these angels were disobedient in the days of Noah. Again, 
that fits with understanding the sons of God in Genesis 6 as fallen angels. So when we consider the evidence, I believe sons of God refers to fallen angels. That there are still some difficulties with this position, but I do believe this is the best interpretation. But I do want to say that if you hold to the Seth godly line view, okay, we will still arrive at the same conclusion. Okay, it's about the purity of the line of the seed of the woman. Okay, and neither view okay, doesn't undermine the gospel. But in my opinion, the angel interpretation is stronger. So with that in mind, in verse 2, back in Genesis chapter 6, okay, the fallen angels, these are they who followed Satan out of heaven, and some of them stooped even lower. We're told that they saw the daughters of men. Okay, this language is likely a reference back to the garden when Eve saw the fruits. Here they saw the daughters of men and they liked what they saw. They were beautiful, they were desirable, and they lusted after these women. And we're told in verse 2 that they took these women as wives. So what we have here is demon, demons marrying women and that leads to the first problem that we must address because jesus teaches that angels don't marry in matthew 22 the sadducees they're trying to trip jesus up the sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection so they invent this scenario that they believe made the resurrection ludicrous and in this exchange as jesus refutes this scenario he says in verse 30 for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So, so what Jesus teaches is that there's no marriage in the eternal state, but rather we will be like the angels. Now what that means is the angels don't marry. But we need to pay particular attention to what Jesus actually says. He doesn't say all angels. He says, angels of God in heaven. That's a distinct group. That doesn't include the fallen angels. So it's not improbable that these fallen angels did pursue marriage. This is another act of blatant rebellion, which would further explain why the Lord responded in the way that he did. But this then leads to the next question. How did they marry and how did they have Children, how were sexual relations and offspring possible? There are two ways to explain this. It could be that these fallen angels come in the form of man. It's interesting that angels are always spoken of with masculine definite articles. There doesn't seem to be any female angels. And if you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember there were two angels. They came in the appearance of man, and the men of the city okay, wanted to do unspeakable things to these angels. These angels, they ate food. Okay? So, so, so it seems to be at least an appearance of real humanity. So this could be a possibility. Okay? We're told in the book of Hebrews that some have entertained angels unaware. So they could have come in the form of a man. Or it could be what we know as demon possession. 
Okay, we see this an awful lot in the ministry of Jesus. And these sons of God indwelt or infiltrated men. They controlled them. These fallen angels commandeered the souls of men. And these demonized men married the daughters of men. Okay, neither understanding is possible. And I think this helps us to see how serious the situation has become. That there are these angelic human marriages. These demons have infiltrated humanity. And remember the goal. Okay, the goal is to corrupt the seed of the woman. Okay, Satan was aware of that promise in the garden. And he was determined to thwart it. And this is one of his many attempts to halt or pollute the line of Messiah. Okay, and this particular ploy proves to be quite successful because in verse 4, we read of the progeny of these relationships. Now, verse 4 is actually quite difficult to understand, particularly the first phrase. But I want you to notice the second half of the phrase first. Sorry, second half of the verse first. It says, These demonized marriages, they resulted in children, and they become mighty men of old, men of renown. Okay, so obviously this was a group who was known to the original readers. When Moses used this phrase, they knew who he was talking about. And there's something about them. There's something that made them stand out. Perhaps it was satanic strength. We see that in the New Testament when someone was demon-possessed, they had incredible strength. But what is clear is that humanity has become infiltrated. The seed of the woman has been corrupted. And it seems this is widespread. Evil multiplied throughout the population. Now what is difficult to determine is the phrase, there were giants in the earth in those days. This word giant is the Hebrew word Nephilim. And this can be explained in a couple of different ways. It's quite a complicated and lengthy debate. I've tried to summarize it in like two short paragraphs. So it could be seen as the offspring of these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Okay, so these Nephilim are the offspring. So if that's the case, it would be restating what is said in the second part of the verse. And this is saying that there were giants in the earth as a result of these demonized marriages. Okay, so that's one understanding. Now, the second understanding is that this could be an independent statement. Some scholars view this phrase as Moses addressing some mythology that the people had encountered in Egypt. And this phrase is him trying to demyth some of the things that they heard. Okay, so we could nearly like put it in brackets like it's a parenthesis. And that too could be a possibility. But however we understand that it's very clear that Satan and his demons have infiltrated mankind. He's perverting the race. He's endeavoring to corrupt the seed of the woman. Okay, that these demons, they have stooped low. They have defied the limits that God has placed on them. They went after strange flesh. And understand that the Savior couldn't be born to a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the deliverer could not come. So understand the stakes are very high. And it's this that was a leading contributor in God's decision to pull the judgment trigger. 
Okay, the whole earth was corrupt. That's apparent in the verses that follow. Violence filled the land. There was sexual perversion. Mankind had declined spiritually, become perverted in all kinds of ways. But the pinnacle of this debauchery was the sons of God marrying the daughters of man. And this great wickedness, which was seen by God, grieved him. Now, isn't verse 6 shocking? It says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. As God looked on at what he had created, it was no longer good. It was now corrupt. I picture a, a beautiful crystal clear sea. You can see to the bottom, even in meters of water, it's full of life. It's spectacular. But then it gets polluted and it goes black and brown. Everything dies. It's now putrid. That illustrates the state of the world. And we're told that it repented the Lord, that he made man and it grieved him. Okay, let, let that sink in. Okay, that's, that's quite the response. Repented the Lord and it grieved him. And as one author explains, God's sorrow at heart and the grief in his heart are striking. This does not mean that creation was out of control, nor does it mean that God hoped for something better but was unable to achieve it. God knew all along that this was how things would turn out. But our text clearly tells us that as God sees his plan for the ages unfold, it affects him. God is not unfeeling in the face of human sin and rebellion. Though God's eternal joy and happiness cannot be disturbed, he is not a disinterested observer of the human scene. And it's very helpful for us to keep in mind. And what the writer does here in verse 6 and into verse 7, he employs a writing technique that gives God human qualities to help us understand him. And there is a technical word for it, but I always get my tongue tied, so I'm not going to try and say it. Um... So I'll just leave it at that. But what we need to understand is he doesn't repent in the same way that we do, nor does he get angry and grieve in the same way that we do. Okay, often when we grieve, we get angry, it's uncontrolled. God's not like that. But nevertheless, this is clear that God is not disinterested. God is not disengaged with the affairs of mankind. The sin here impacted God. And as he observed what was unfolding, he decrees in verse 7 that the world is going to be destroyed. He's going to unleash cataclysmic judgments to purge the world of its pervasive wickedness. He needs to turn everything upside down and inside out to rid it of its rampant corruption. Now you say, well, what gives God the right to do that? Well, he has the authority to make such a decision in verse 7 because he made it. He's the creator and hence he's free to do as he pleases with his creation. And here he determines that worldwide judgment is necessary. This is the only solution to what's unfolding. So it's vital for us to observe that there's a clear cut moral motivation behind the sending of the flood. The flood was sent to purge the world of its wickedness and to remove the corruption that had infiltrated the seed of the woman. The flood was required in order to ensure 
the coming of Christ. This is why the world drowned. But it's important for us to not miss the grace of God, even in this decree to judge in such a devastating fashion. Notice in verse 8, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first mention of the word grace in the Bible, okay? Grace or favor. Now, what's important for us to identify is that Noah was wicked too. Okay, Noah was a sinner. He was a wretch just like the rest of mankind. Okay, in verse 9, we read that he's just and righteous, but this is true only because of the grace of God. He didn't earn or merit that grace, but similar to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. And this man, Noah, who by God's grace was different to those around him, he would be used by the Lord in the most astonishing way. He would be used to preserve mankind when the judgment comes. And we're going to learn much about Noah in the coming sermons, but here he is a picture of God's grace. Now, there's another picture of grace in verse 3. Notice that it says, okay, the, the Lord speaking, my spirit will not always strive with man. Again, that's a difficult phrase to understand, but perhaps it calls to mind Genesis 1-2. Okay, th- th- there we hear about the moving or, or the hovering spirits. And where the spirit hovers, where it moves, there is order. Chaos is restrained. But where it's withdrawn, chaos flourishes. So when the spirit is withdrawn, judgment would be unleashed. But notice in verse 3 that this would be withheld for 120 years. And again, this is God's grace. Because Noah preached for that period of time. In the New Testament, we read that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Okay, so he was preaching as he built the ark. People had every chance to repent. People had an opportunity to get on the ark. And this is God's long-suffering. But eventually time will run out and judgment will fall. But perhaps the greatest aspect of grace is the fact that God intervened in order to ensure that Satan was not successful in completely infiltrating humanity. Because if God didn't intervene and Satan completely infiltrated mankind, that would make it impossible for Messiah to come through the seed of the woman. So the Lord ensured that the line was preserved through Noah, that the infiltrated would be destroyed and the fallen angels who were responsible were imprisoned This all ensuring the purity of the line of Christ. And that ensures the salvation of mankind. And that, my friend, is certainly a gracious gift. And who would have thought that even in the decree to drown the world, horrific judgments, but even that is seasoned with grace. So I hope we can now answer the question, why did the Lord flood the world? It was because of the wickedness of mankind, it had become so pervasive, it was widespread, and it was about eliminating one of Satan's attempts to completely corrupt the seed of the woman and jeopardize the coming of the Savior. That's the big idea of this difficult text that is Genesis chapter 6. And I trust that helps you to understand it a little bit better.
Now, I want to leave you with three thoughts of application, okay? Three things we learn about God from this account. Number one, God sees everything. Okay, the Lord saw the great wickedness that had spread throughout the earth and it grieved him. And this reminds us that in our lives and in our world, nothing escapes the gaze of God. Nothing's hidden from him. He sees everything that we do. He knows everything that we say. He knows everything that we think and desire. Now think about that. That's quite daunting, isn't it? There's nothing that he does not see. There's no secrets with God. Okay, let's get really okay, practical here. This should act as an incentive for holiness. Okay, when I was a child, if my parents were watching me, I was far less likely to do the wrong thing. That ought to be the same with God. Okay, I understand there's no such thing as a secret with God. He sees what you do. Okay, he sees how you talk to your spouse. He sees and hears your anger with your children. He knows your internet history, even if you've deleted it. He knows when you lie. He knows what's happening in your heart and mind. He knows your desires. He sees what you do with your boyfriend or girlfriend. He knows what music you listen to. He knows what movies and TV shows you consume. He sees how you waste time. He sees the bitterness within your heart and the refusal to forgive and move forward. Okay, God sees everything. There is nothing hidden from him. And our sin grieves our gods. And that ought to act as an incentive by his enabling grace to pursue holiness. But also, how, ast how astounding, okay, I want you to think about this, this should thrill our hearts. God sees everything that we think or do. God knows the desires of our hearts. He sees us at our absolute worst, and yet he still loves us. And he loves us more than we realize. That, my friend, is amazing. So that's the first thing we learn about God. The second thing we learn is that God is long-suffering, but will judge. Well, we learn in the text that God is patient with wicked mankind. He waited 120 years before the judgment was unleashed. And during this time, Noah preached. Noah warned the world about the judgment that was coming. God extended opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And this is what God is like. He is long-suffering with mankind because he desires that all come to repentance. That's his heart. But we need to understand that a time is coming when judgment will fall. God was patient, but as we'll see in the coming sermons, the flood did come. And God, too, is long-suffering with us. But please understand this. If you keep rejecting Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection as the means of dealing with your sin, if you keep ignoring that, if you keep neglecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, a time will come when the Spirit will stop working. And when you die, God's judgment will fall upon you. You have another opportunity right now 
to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. Understand, this is the only way for sin to be dealt with. This is the only way to be made right with God. This is the only way to get to heaven. My friend, don't waste this opportunity because you don't know if you'll have another one. This could be your last opportunity. And for those of us who are Christians, praise the Lord that he was and is so long-suffering with us. He's long-suffering with us even in our sanctification, is he not? We keep struggling with the same things. And if God is so patient with us, ought not we to be patient with others? Patient with our spouse, with our children, with our colleagues, with our family, with our friends. Since this has been extended to us, we should extend it to others. That's the second thing we learn about God. And the third and final thing is that God is in control. Satan here did his best to disrupt the plans and purposes of God. He was determined to halt the coming of the Savior through the seed of the woman, but he failed. And every attempt, there were many attempts throughout the Old Testament, they all failed. And that's because God's in control. God's ruling, God's reigning, and nothing, not even a being as powerful as Satan, can thwart the plans and purposes of God. The promises of God will be fulfilled. Nothing or no one is able to prevent that. So in both the big things and in the small things, in the massive world events and in the smallest details of your life, God is in control. And he has plans and purposes that he's bringing about in our world, in our church, and in your life. And nothing can stop him. God will do what he said. God will win. Not even Satan is any match for him. And that's our great hope. Our faith is not vain because God will do what he promised. Nothing can thwart that. Our future is safe and secure. And our God is at work in our lives in the present. He never loses control over this world. And he never loses control in your life. My friend, this is our God. And our God is a wonderful God. And we have the privilege, this is what it means to be a Christian, of getting to know our God more and more intimately. This is our daily privilege. And may we be more and more captivated by the greatness of our God. And may that inflame praise and worship in our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word. And um, I'm the first to admit that this is a challenging uh, portion of scripture uh, to work through. Uh, Lord, I do pray that I've been faithful uh, to the text. If anything I've said is incorrect, I pray it be quickly forgotten. Uh, but Lord, I do pray that we would be captivated by you, would be struck uh, by how great you are and help us uh, to be meditating on the things that this text teaches us about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.